Father, once again, we thank you that, um, that you're always here with us. Pray that you would re reveal yourself to us just now. Help us to see clearly the difference between all the kingdoms of the world and your kingdom. Amen. So again, the people, remember, wanted a king. God gave them 20 reasons not to have a king. But they said, no, we want a king. And we talked about last time, that was pretty remarkable that God would give in to something like that that was less than the ideal. And now I want to talk about here this last part. Why did they want a king? So that we will be like the other nations. And what I'm going to talk about here in this Bible study is basically, I think this has been the, the desire throughout all of human history, really to be like the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus, as we'll discuss, came to usher in, came to teach us about an entirely different, a radically different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that's um, hard to accept, really. So we'll read this whole passage again in context. God said, when that time comes, you will complain bitterly because of your king, whom you yourselves chose, but the Lord will not listen to your complaints. Samuel talking, actually. People paid no attention to Samuel, but said, no, we want a king so that we will be like the other nations with our own king to rule us and lead us out to war and fight our battles. And it's kind of implied that maybe God wasn't doing a good enough job leading them into battle. Remember, they took the covenant box against the Philistines and God didn't help them. Okay, so they want a king. Maybe they'll be more successful. It would kind of suggest that uh, military conquest um, was, was something that was uh, more desirable to them. Okay, so we're going to discuss um, I think basically everything that we know is kingdom of the world. And what Jesus came to tell us about the kingdom of God, it's, uh, it's so different. It's almost hard to see it. Well, God gave them a king. And he said to them, I am your God, the one who rescues you from all your troubles and difficulties. But today you have rejected me and have asked me to give you a king. Very well then. Gather yourselves before the Lord by tribes and clans. And you know how it went? They went down <clears throat> further and further and finally came to Saul. I'm just pointing out here how many times God told them this was a bad idea. You've rejected me. And then Samuel told them, now here is the king you chose. You asked for him, and now the Lord has given him to you. All will go well with you if you honor the Lord your God and serve him, listen to him and obey his commands so God hasn't left them. And if you and your king follow him, we kind of have an additional hurdle now. We have not only the people need to follow God, but the king also has to follow God. And, and we'll see so many times where the king led the people away from God. But if you do not listen to the Lord, but disobey his commands, he will be against you and your king. So then stand where you are and you will see the great thing which the Lord is going to do. It's the dry season, isn't it? But I will pray and the Lord will send thunder and rain and when this happens, you will realize that you committed a great sin against the Lord when you asked him for a king. So Samuel prayed, and on that same day, the Lord sent thunder and rain, and then all the people became afraid of the Lord and of Samuel. And they said to Samuel, Please, sir, pray to the Lord your God for us so that we won't die. We now realize that besides all our other sins, we have sinned by asking for a king. Okay, and then they had a great praise that they had a king in Saul. Okay, they didn't say, okay, well, we don't, we've changed our mind. Didn't change their mind. They knew it was a great sin, but they kept their king anyway. Okay, so if we were just to kind of go through very briefly in a couple minutes, the history from here. So we have Saul, David, and Solomon, and there were some good moments in here. Um, David was a man after God's own heart. 
But we know some of the things that David did that was um, really devastating. For a time, Solomon, things started out well, and uh, then he followed after other gods. And this really was the crushing blow to the kingdom, because what happened was Solomon's son Rehoboam, whose mother was an Ammonite, who do you think did more child raising if you have a thousand wives? And um, so his mother worshipped another god, and Rehoboam made a very foolish decision, which, ed, uh, which led to the split of the kingdom. So from 931, when Rehoboam was king, we have a parallel kingdom. We have the ten northern tribes here. Jeroboam was the first king. And then we have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin over here. And so this went on for about 200 years. And sometimes you would have these uh, Israel and Judah fight against each other. I put asterisks here in uh, the kings of Judah because every once in a while, there was a king that did some good things. Okay, so there were a few. Uh, when we look over here at the kings of Israel, not a one. Okay, they were all bad. And some of them more notorious than others. Jeroboam, Ahab. Okay, so um, this was a very difficult time. In 722 BC, roughly 200 years, we have the Assyrian captivity. And the Assyrians took the 10 northern tribes away and they're lost forever. Okay, so Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And remember, Benjamin here was with uh, Judah. Paul was a Benjamite. Okay, so the 10 northern tribes went in, were assimilated into uh, the Assyrian culture and captivity. And then after that, we have the, just the left of the tribes of Judah. Okay, and so we have this another period of time, less than 100 years. King Manasseh, you know, killed so many people. The streets flowed with blood. Okay, he eventually converted. But most of these kings, again, were bad. And then we have the three Babylonian invasions, and then Judah and Benjamin goes off into the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so it's a, it's a, this is the rest of the Bible study. I hope not to discourage you from coming, but we're going to go through, uh, you know, all of the difficult times with these kings and captivities. And then after this, of course, the people return to rebuild uh, Jerusalem after the Edict of Cyrus. And this is where we uh, involve Haggai and Zechariah, Zerubbabel and Joshua, which helped to rebuild the city. Esther fits in this time. Ezra and Nehemiah came back to help. Okay, Nehemiah, remember, told people, uh, I'm going to pull out your beards if you don't do what is right. I mean, they really began to obey at this point. They got rid of their foreign wives. And there was a trend uh, that we see coming up to the time of Jesus where they really did obey. They worked hard to keep all the rules. Okay, um, but there was a long several hundred year period of time and the people anxiously waiting for the Messiah. Question is, what kind of a Messiah were they expecting? Were they expecting a king like the kingdoms of the world? Or were they expecting a king whose kingdom was of another world? And it's, it's very clear what kind of a king they were expecting. Okay, the, the suffering servant uh, picture of a Messiah, okay, that certainly was not, um, not their picture of a Messiah. They were expecting someone like uh, Rambo. Okay, the, you know, the Romans were cruel, very cruel. They were oppressed, and they really wanted someone who would liberate them and militarily establish a kingdom and defeat their enemies. Okay, so Jesus was quite disappointing. Okay, born in a manger, poor family, grew up in Nazareth, worked as a carpenter, um, not the kind of king, not anywhere close to what they were expecting. Okay, I think we should be somewhat humble about our, our image of the second coming. Okay, I think... Um, 
some of us, and I did as a child, boy, it's pretty straightforward. It's going to happen this way. It's very clear. know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, when we consider that in the first coming, everyone missed it. No one was expecting it to be like this. I think we should um, be very, uh, have some humility about what we expect to happen here in the future. Well, the, the message so much of Jesus is, I'm going to tell you about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist, when he announced Jesus, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus, after he was in the wilderness temptation, very next thing, from then on, Jesus began to tell people, turn to God and change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, you may be more familiar with repent. Kingdom of heaven is near, but um, repentance is an interesting word. It's a Greek word, metanoia. Noia is brain. And meta is to change, like metamorphosis. So it really is to change the way we think and act and perhaps change our opinions about what the kingdom of God is really like and what the king is like. Okay, so what is this uh, kingdom? And Jesus' first sermon, okay, his sermon on the mount. Everyone, I mean, this was when he really is going to establish his, his platform, his kingdom. And so everyone is there, and I'm sure very anxious to learn what it's going to be like. So he gathered them all together, and it was a very deflating experience because this is what he told them about the kingdom. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now, that didn't fit. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Happy are those who mourn. God will comfort them. Are we supposed to mourn? Happy are those who are humble. Uh, humility. Uh, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Happy are those who are merciful to others. Hey, certainly not the Romans. Happy are the pure in heart. They will see God. Happy are those who work for peace. Peace. No, we're supposed to defeat our enemies. Happy are those who work for peace. And then this one, I think, was just too much. Happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of evil lies against you because you are my followers. Uh, this was just a complete mismatch. Okay, happy when we're persecuted. And so you really get a sense when you just read on that there was a revolt against this sermon. It's almost like Jesus had to say, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I did, uh, don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures because it sure sounds like he's demolishing the scriptures either God's law or the prophets. Again, they're reading God's law and the prophets, and they have in their mind, this is how it's going to be when the Messiah comes. No, I'm not here to demolish, but to complete or to fill it full with meaning. I'm going to put it all together. Okay, so he didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. They just hadn't read the Old Testament in the right way. Okay, so he would go on in this sermon, an example after example after example, to tell them, this is what my kingdom is like. And... Uh, just reading the text, I think these are very hard words for us to hear, and they're very hard words for us to apply to our daily life. Now, let me tell you, here's what my kingdom is like. And if one of the occupation troops, the Romans, your national enemies, forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. How do you think that settled uh, with the people? Um, can we even make an application of this today? Um, who's our national enemy? Well, I think, I bet none of you have met someone from Al-Qaeda here personally, but how would you apply this to a real enemy? 
Okay, this, this message, um, I think, might not be real popular today either. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. What does that mean? Do good to those who hate you. How do you do that? Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Okay, are we well known in Christianity for loving our enemies, praying for them, doing good to them? Uh, is this the uh, reputation that uh, we generally have? If anyone hits you on one cheek, let him hit the other. Is this weakness? Um, we'll discuss. I think this is ultimate power, but um, it, it may sound like weakness. If someone takes your coat, let them have your shirt as well. How do we apply these things today? Give to everyone who asks you for something, and when someone takes what is yours, do not ask for it back. Do for others just what you want them to do for you. Well, of course, the golden rule. Love your enemies and do good to them. And remember in this passage, he, he said, yeah, you've heard, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And I think it was Jesus who gave that rule in the Old Testament. But now, uh, I'm going to show you what the real kingdom is like. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Do good for them. Lend and expect nothing back. Do not judge others. Do not condemn others. Isn't this very difficult for us not to judge and condemn others? Forgive others. Okay, so between the Matthew and Luke account here of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus came and told them, this is what my kingdom is like. Okay, and he was uh, rejected and I think in large part crucified for such a vision of the kingdom. Again, how do you think Jesus was received in his day? I tell you, talking to religious people, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. And why wouldn't they accept this kingdom? I think, again, if we come back to the Sermon on the Mount, happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Um, there needs to be some humility that we don't have it all figured out. And the people were so settled into exactly how it was going to be that they just stopped right at this point. They weren't open to considering uh, another way of looking at the kingdom. And tax collectors and prostitutes going into the kingdom ahead of people uh, going to church and reading their Bibles. Very surprising. So what can we say about this kingdom? Um, again, I think this is its such a central message of Jesus. He kept giving all these parables. We won't go through these, but the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like this. Kept trying to give examples. Here's one. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. Okay, that, again, that's not a vision of the kingdom of heaven. The greatest is the least. And the disciples were continually at odds with Jesus over this. Yeah, on one occasion, they came to Capernaum, and after going indoors, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? How would you like to have Jesus ask that question? You've been maybe lagging behind, having an argument. Uh, what would you say? But they would not answer him, because on the road, they'd been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Okay, and this is really uh, the essence of what the kingdom, how the kingdom of the world operates. It's a hierarchy, and we want to get to the top, and we want to control and rule or judge in our minds everyone who is down lower. Okay, and so the disciples are trying to see who can be the greatest. And Jesus sat down, called the twelve disciples, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first in my kingdom must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. Hey, what do you think about a kingdom like that? It was hard for the disciples to, to hear. And it's just a handful of examples. Okay, but on another um, time, the mother of uh, Zebedee's brothers came with two sons and knelt before Jesus with a request. What do you want, Jesus asked. 
And she said, give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest places of honor in your kingdom. Again, that's a kingdom of the world. It's a top-down sort of a kingdom. And how would you like here in the most uh, red book in human history that your mom came and asked Jesus if you could be uh, at the top? Okay, it's part of the evidence, I think, that the gospel accounts we have are believable because when we have legendary accounts and records of people that probably didn't exist, uh, the followers, um, they're always heroes too. They never look like fools. The disciples frequently don't look very good. And just the fact that we've got that in there, uh, it's called the embarrassment factor, actually. The fact that it's there makes it believable that they really said that. This really happened, this conversation. And Jesus responded, you have no idea what you're asking. And he said to James and John, are you capable of drinking the cup that I'm about to drink? And in the message translation, or paraphrase, I should say, they respond, sure, why not? <laughs> okay, and now Jesus' uh, explanation here. This is such a good um, description, <clears throat> I think, of what his kingdom looks like. So Jesus called them all together and said, you know that the rulers of the heathen have power over them. This is a kingdom of the world, power over and the leaders have complete authority. This, however, is not the way it shall be among you. And that's not what my kingdom is like. If one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of the rest. And if you want to be first, you must be the slave of the others. Like the Son of Man, who did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life to redeem many people. And so, um, <clears throat> I think what we see here, again, two kingdoms. There's a power over kingdom, and the kingdom that Jesus wants to usher in, uh, we could call it power under kingdom. Okay, it is a power that wins people through service, okay, not coercively um, trying to pull strings, but it is to come under and to serve. Okay, and if we're ever tempted to do things in a different way, I mean, we have God that came in human form, who did not come to rule over us, but he served, laid down his life, and, uh, and we should follow uh, Jesus in everything we do. So that's what our king is like. And he would tell Pilate, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's not like a kingdom of the world. If it were, my followers would fight. My kingdom is not of this world. Okay, say a few more things just from Jesus about the kingdom. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, when he taught them how to pray, he said, when you pray, say this. Father, may your holy name be honored. Okay, what is God's holy name? Name in the Bible is synonymous with character. So he's really saying, may your character be honored, be seen, be revealed for what it is, and may your kingdom come. And I know I had usually read this as, well, we're waiting for the kingdom to come in the clouds. That's what he's talking about. May you come back soon. Take us to heaven. Uh, but I think he, uh, really, we could make a good case that the kingdom Jesus is really wanting to usher in is a kingdom that happens on this earth. We are to change the world that we live in. And just to give one example of this, where is the kingdom? Some Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. That's what we're talking about. And his answer was, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen. No one will say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you or among you. Okay, so the kingdom that, that Jesus wants to establish on this earth is a kingdom within and among his followers. What would the kingdom look like? Well, again, back to the disciples, not to be too hard on the disciples, but, um, you know, when Jesus was rejected, they remembered some stories from the Old Testament, 
And Jesus was rejected in a town, and they said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Okay, but Jesus turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know what sort of spirit you are. Okay, that's not the kind of kingdom uh, that I came to usher in. And uh, I think the most remarkable contrast of all is the night before Jesus died. Uh, again, if you're um, a disciple, you would certainly want this left out of the record because it is quite embarrassing here that Thursday night, an argument broke out among the disciples as to which one of them should be thought of as the greatest. Now, Jesus has told them so many times, my kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is a kingdom of service. I came to serve. You, will you please serve? Be like me. And they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest the night before he died. Now, how does he, how would you break in in this kind of a mentality? How would you change their mindset? And what Jesus did is, I think, one of the most remarkable stories in the entire Bible. We have the description here in John. In this context, Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew that he'd come from God and was going to God. And so in all this, in recognition of power, I wish we didn't know what happened next, but what do we think Jesus did? Okay, we might imagine two she-bears come out of the woods, chase the disciples around. Maybe Judas is consumed by fire. What happened in recognition of all this power? So what he did, he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, and tied a towel around his waist, and he washed their feet. In the context of, again, this selfish desire to be like a kingdom of the world, to rule, to have power over people, to be the greatest, and Jesus here in this just incredible illustration said, hey, let me, let me perform a servant's job. Let me wash your feet. Okay, how many pairs of feet do you think he washed? Did he stop at Judas? Did he wash all 12 pairs? I think he washed a dozen pairs of dirty feet that night. And I think looking back, the disciples perhaps, this was um, one of the most remarkable things that Jesus ever did. So the question is, is this weakness? From a certain perspective, this can sound like weakness. But um, we can think of some great heroes of people that have really used these methods. Martin Luther King, um, certainly um, a great hero in this area. He's, he's known, of course, for the wonderful things he did for racial injustice, but it sometimes forgot the methods that Martin Luther King used. I think Christ-like methods. He would say this, do to us what you will and we will still love you, but be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. See, I think um, this kind of power, it is not to destroy and defeat and humiliate our enemies. We're actually hoping to win our enemies in the process. Okay, and so again, this can look like foolishness, but I mean, uh, many of the things that Jesus did from a worldly perspective would seem foolish. I mean, wash their feet. Why didn't he show some power? Because we see the impact of that kind of love. We see the impact of what people like Martin Luther King were able to uh, accomplish. I think Gandhi would be another good example. We'd talk about it. I think he's talking about these two kingdoms when he said power is of two kinds. One is obtained by the fear of punishment and the other by acts of love. Power based on love is a thousand times more effective and permanent than the one derived from fear of punishment. So we have these, these two kingdoms here that are at odds, kingdom of the world and uh, kingdom of God. So I think if we wanted to just see in a picture what does God's kingdom look like, it always looks like Jesus Christ. 
And the highlight moment really is Calvary. What does the kingdom look like? It always looks like Calvary, which is serving, giving, even a willingness to suffer for others if necessary. Hey, Jesus laid down his life and his enemies are around the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. This is what the kingdom of God looks like in a nutshell. This is our clearest example. Okay, but let's just go on here in uh, human history. Jesus is resurrected and at the ascension, I think this must have been very depressing for Jesus to hear, the disciples say, Lord, are you now going to give Israel its own king again? Now that's one way of translating this verse, but they're really asking, now can we rule? Now can we have power and authority and be like a kingdom of the world? It seemed like they didn't quite get it. And Jesus' answer was kind of interesting. Uh, well, I'm going to go now. You guys need the Holy Spirit, and you can figure it out here when Pentecost comes. Okay, so um, he went back up to heaven, and of course the Holy Spirit did come. And then I think we see uh, the best example in human history of when the kingdom uh, was really manifest. Okay, because what happened in Acts is really remarkable. I think this is, a, this is what the kingdom looks like. That the believers, all who believed, were together and held everything in common. They began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God, having the goodwill of all the people, and it was infectious. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. And they never tried to establish a kingdom of the world. Okay, the disciples after that, um, you know, were not trying to set up that kind of a hierarchy. It seemed like they got the message. And so when uh, Paul and Silas were traveling around, this had such a powerful effect, their reputation had preceded them. And the people said, these men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. Okay, this is not a weak kingdom. This is a very powerful kingdom when the true other-centered love is, is manifest in the world. We just haven't seen it very many times in human history. Okay, and so we have, of course, uh, the New Testament then is full of this. Paul would say in Romans, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, isn't that, it's just our inclination, eye for an eye. We still operate very much on that. If your enemy is hungry, your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. But again, here is our charge. Overcome evil with good. And we're not used to using those methods. It's very difficult sometimes to put skin on what that looks like. Okay, that's why we have to keep looking at what Jesus did. Okay, and the last verse here from the New Testament, before we go on here with the chronology of human history, Paul would say, well, we are to fight, but here's the way we fight. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds. Notice, what are we fighting? To knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. False arguments about what? We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Okay, so our, our, whatever we're, our weapons, things that we're fighting with, they ultimately are to bring a true knowledge of God. Eternal life is to know God. This is the kind of battle that we are engaged in as Christians. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Okay, and for several hundred years, the Christian church just uh, spread like crazy. And you're probably familiar with the phrase here that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. 
Okay, because this kind of a kingdom, it really did take off. But then something very uh, dramatic happened around this time. And I, I don't know that we've really had a good glimpse of the kingdom ever since. You probably know the story in around 312, Constantine, uh, whether how this really happened or whether he did this just for political motives, I think people still aren't sure, but he saw a sign. Okay, and he said, by the, and heard the words, by this sign you shall conquer. Okay, and so Christianity became legalized. Okay, but it was the first time anyone associated the Christian faith, faith of Christ, with violence. And we went from the persecuted church now to the militant church. Okay, and a short time later, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it was a crime not to be a Christian. But the Christian church again became a kingdom of the world. Okay, and so um, probably there weren't crosses on the shields, but um, here's the older picture here of, uh, in Greek, these are the first two letters of uh, Jesus Christ. Cairo, you can see the X here, and it's supposed to be an R. And just imagine here, now we're going out and we're killing our enemies with the initials of Jesus Christ on the banners and on the swords. Is that what, is that the kind of kingdom? that Jesus was talking about when he talked about love for enemies and so on. Okay, and uh, we have uh, just interesting quotes we could bring out. Charlemagne here from 814 AD would say, if there's any one of the Saxon people lurking among them unbaptized, and if he scorns to come to baptism and stay a pagan, uh, let him die. And so there was a, a time when it was really viewed it's okay to kill our enemies or to inflict temporal pain if we could help to save their soul. And so, of course, this is how things like uh, strangling to death and then burning Tyndale could be justified. Um, and again, the, these were people that would say they were followers of Jesus who uh, did these things. Most of the New Testament is uh, from Tyndale. Okay, again, is this what Jesus' kingdom looks like? Well, a, a book that uh, really had an incredible impact on me, I, I think it's an excellent book about God's character, about God's kingdom, by Greg Boyd. It's called The Myth of a Christian Nation. And uh, I realize this a little uh, touchy subject here. I just want to say this is not meant to be political, okay? But uh, I think uh, we need to recognize that sometimes we tend to associate our Christian faith with politics and with wars and battle and things like that. I mean, I think we need to be very careful uh, that we separate the two. And um, in this book, uh, Greg Bird describes an experience that he had. I happened to visit a July 4th worship service at a certain megachurch. At center stage in this auditorium stood a large cross next to an equally large American flag. The congregation sang some praise choruses mixed with such patriotic hymns as God Bless America, the climax of the service centered on a video of a well-known Christian military general giving a patriotic speech about how God had blessed America and blessed its military troops. Triumphant military music played in the background as he spoke. The video closed with a scene of a silhouette of three crosses on a hill with an American flag waving in the background. Majestic patriotic music now thundered. Suddenly, four fighter jets appeared on the horizon, flew over the crosses, and then split apart. As they roared over the camera, the words, God bless America, appeared on the screen in front of the crosses. The congregation responded with roaring applause, catcalls, and a standing ovation. I saw several people wiping tears from their eyes. 
Indeed, as I remained frozen in my seat, I grew teary-eyed as well, but for entirely different reasons. I was struck with horrified grief. Thoughts raced through my mind. How could the cross and the sword have been so thoroughly fused without anyone seeming to notice? How could Calvary be associated with bombs and missiles? How could the kingdom of God be reduced to this sort of violent nationalistic tribalism? Has the church progressed at all since the Crusades? And I, I think the, the point here, again, it's not to be Republican or Democrat. In fact, I heard someone give a talk once that um, I would love the title. It was right wing question mark, left wing question mark, or foot washing question mark. So I think if we want to identify ourselves primarily, uh, let's identify ourselves uh, as a kingdom of uh, service. So what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for Rambo to come back? Um, or are we working to establish God's kingdom on earth? Uh, this was a sermon that was given quite recently here by a well-known pastor. I'll put his name uh, here, but uh, it was quite shocking to me. And uh, he doesn't, this is a weak picture of God to him. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Now, what did we do to Jesus? Um, is Jesus really God? Was he God in human form? I mean, was he not tortured to death by his own followers? So are we expecting a God to come back who is different in character than Jesus? So I've seen, um, uh, you know, lots of bumper stickers. I work at the VA, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> this kind of stuff. See lots of bumper stickers that have American pride and things like this. And there are lots of good things that we could say about America. This is not an anti-America uh, talk here. Uh, but can we say we are proud of God? Uh, do we see many bumper stickers that, um, that talk about that? Do we identify ourselves as primarily with a kingdom that's not of this world or as our primary identification with a kingdom of the world? Uh, I saw this some time ago. It was quite shocking. We need to see Jesus as not king of... America. Again, for good things that we could say about America. Uh, many of the good things that happen with the Constitution and so on. But America is a kingdom of the world. Okay, it does the things that kingdoms of the world do. And that's just, you know, by its very nature. Again, our citizenship, as Paul would say, we need to primarily see ourselves as citizens of heaven as we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for the clear revelation of your kingdom in Jesus Christ. Though it may be difficult for us to really grasp how we can implement that kingdom and in what way we can serve, how we can reveal your great love and that kind of service to those around us. Uh, we just pray for each one of us here that, um, that that would be our ideal, that we would seek to reveal your kingdom in those ways. Amen.